So how many of you have heard the story of the cross before? Raise your hand if you've heard the story of the cross before. Raise your hand if you grew up in church and you've heard it since childhood. Okay, raise your hand if you didn't hear about the cross of Christ until you were an adult. A few, but most of us have heard this over and over again on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross, and we almost, if we're not careful, could be, could be blah, blah, blah. God help us if that is our attitude. It is my prayer and my fondest hope and wish and dream that today, tomorrow, and Friday, it will be as if we had never heard of it before that God would make it fresh and, free and make it new. In Bible study fellowship where I've received my training, they train us to teach the important truths of the faith as if no one had ever heard it before. So that's my goal and my aim. And when I was thinking about that, I thought about one of my heroes. And one of my heroes is Corey Ten Boom. You may know the story of Corey. I mean, I've never met her, but I've read her books. And she's, she's inspired me, and she's just so, so helped me to walk with Jesus Christ. And you may remember, remember the story. They were Christians. They were Bible-believing people who lived under the Nazi terror. And they hid God's chosen people, the Jews, in their house. And they were caught. And they were sent to concentration camp. So there's Corey and her sister Betsy, and they've smuggled in their most precious possession, a Bible. They have a Bible that they have smuggled in. And every day in the concentration camp, their barracks were totally infested with lice. And so the guards wouldn't go in there. And so they learned to be thankful even for lice and fleas because they could open God's word. And, 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 and I remember reading, and I'm paraphrasing it all, but I remember reading that the Bible began to come alive to them in a way that it never had before. They're, they're being yelled at. They're being mocked. They're being beaten. You know, at one point they were standing in line. All these women have to undress, completely undress, stand in line and go through this checkpoint so this doctor can look down their throats and in between their fingers. Why did they have to undress? It was just to humiliate them just to beat them down and they're standing in line waiting and Corey Ten Boom is standing there and her sister Betsy is standing right before her and all of a sudden Betsy like starts and Corey is very concerned about Bethy, Betsy's health and she's like what's wrong and she says Corey they took his clothes too and I never thanked him that's what I want it to be like for us oh my goodness they took his clothes too. He was despised too. Everybody didn't get him too. So let's, let's think about the cross. Let's focus on the cross. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus so that the things of earth will just fade in the background. And let us know and remember that it had to be a cross of love. So we'll have the video. i 
So we've seen how the Passover foreshadows the cross. The Passover was God's judgment on sin, especially on the gods of Egypt. And it was his deliverance, his salvation through the blood of the lamb. And we've learned that there's only one way to escape God's judgment. That's through the blood of the, of the lamb personally applied to the doorpost of our hearts. And then we looked at Isaiah 53, which foretells the cross. The suffering servant is the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's the Lamb of God that has been slain from the creation of the world. And 700 years before it happened, God gave it to Isaiah in amazing detail. He also gave it to the psalmist in Psalm 22, but we didn't have time to go there as well. Jesus died on our behalf. He died in our place. He's our substitute. That's what Isaiah 53 teaches us. So now today, we want to take a look at the cross itself. We're going to start out in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. We're going to look at Gethsemane first. Um, I'm going to be skipping around a lot, so you might want to just write the verses down and, instead of trying to follow me, unless you're the king of Bible sword drills. But I want to remind you and remind myself, you know, sometimes we want God to be who we want him to be, Sometimes we want his word to say what we want it to say. But I want to remind you that God's truth is true truth, as Francis Schaeffer said, and context is everything. You may have heard the story of the man who genuinely desired to hear from God. So he opened his Bible. He said, Lord, speak to me. I want to hear from you. So he, he randomly opened the Bible and he read this verse. And Judas went out and hung himself. And he's like, I didn't want that. Well, let me try again. So he tries again. Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> you got to be careful, right? You can make the word of God say anything. We want to have it in context. So in context, 700 years before Christ, there is Isaiah. He's prophesying, repent, turn back to God because the Assyrians are rising up in power. So after Isaiah was the Assyrian conquest and the nation of Israel, the 10 tribes to the north, were taken over. They were scattered. They were basically diminished. And then a little bit later, the Babylonians come in and they do the same thing to the land of Judah. And Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar marches in and takes it over and, and takes captives back to Babylon with him, one of which was Daniel. Seventy years the nation is in this captivity. They're slaves. And when they're finally allowed to return to the land of promise under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the rest of the prophets kind of fit in. They're either pre-exilic or post-exilic. And they tell the same message over and over again. I love that. You know, I'm telling you the same message over and over again. And I love how it's fitting with what Tom is sharing at night. And it's fitting what, with what Matt and Lee are sharing in the morning. It all fits together because God's truth is truth. And it's the message, it never changes. The methods might change, the approach might change, the um, specific emphasis might change, but it's all God's message. 
We just moved. Before we moved, I had a really pretty nice finished basement. And I love Diet Coke. This is my thing. I have a real problem with it. If you want to pray for deliverance this week for anybody, maybe you should pray for me. I don't drink coffee. I drink a little bit of warm tea in the morning, and I like my Diet Coke. So my basement was done in all Coca-Cola stuff. Now, it's not the expensive, pricey Coca-Cola stuff. It's the garage sale. That's really cute. That'll look good in my basement stuff. My favorite piece is a jigsaw puzzle about this big that my dad did as my mom was dying, and I helped him with that. And it's all the different Coca-Cola advertisements in a puzzle, and they're all the old, antique-looking ones. Well, after mom passed and dad had that, I said, Dad, can I have that? And he said, yeah, he gave it to me. And my sweet husband took it that Christmas and had it custom framed for me to hang up there. It's, you know, drink, drink Coca-Cola, delicious and refreshing, over and over again, you know, the slogans. That's the same thing what we're coming to the word because you know what, my friends, it's delicious and it's refreshing. And it's the same message over and over again. Tomorrow we're going to see how the Apostle Paul never, ever, ever got over the message that everywhere he went, it was Jesus Christ this, Jesus Christ that, this is the gospel, repent and believe. I don't know if you're a Billy Graham fan or not. Billy Graham's one of my heroes too. In the 1940s, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, a little bit in the 2000s, the man is well up in his 90s now. What is his last thing that he's put out? Hope for America, the plain, simple gospel. Over and over, he's never changed his message. So let's take a fresh look at this message. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Time between the Testaments. The Bible is silent for 400 years. There's no new revelation. Everything's waiting. The world, the Jewish world, is holding its breath. We pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come back. They prayed, Lord, send your Messiah. Every woman who, who conceived thought, will this be the Messiah? Am I going to be the mother of, this, of Messiah? There was a time of Hellenization of culture. The Greek world came in so strong. The Greeks ruled the world. Actually, it was during that time that we got got the Septuagint, the Greek edition of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's called the 70 because they took 70 scholars, took 70 days to translate the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. It was also the time of the Maccabees. It was the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth, who was so vile and so against God that he sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the temple yards. You talk about Jews getting up in arms. Finally, as we turn into the pages of the New Testament, a prophet, there's a new word from God, a prophet arrives. His name is John the Baptist. And I know, I know, John might have been a Baptist, as they say, but Jesus was a Nazarene. So whatever, whatever. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Even though he appears in the pages of the New Testament, his mission, his message, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. He preached a message of repentance. Repent, repent, repent. What did he say? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you know what, my friends? You don't just repent once to receive Christ. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you and I have to live lifestyles of repentance. And we should be the quickest ones to say, Lord, I'm so sorry I blew it. 
please forgive me, and cast herself on, her, on his mercy again. So John comes baptizing. He was baptizing them not because they had been saved and not because they understood who Jesus was. John's baptism was different. His baptism was a baptism of repentance, of outward cleansing. Make a change, get ready for the king. And as he's out baptizing, one day he looks up in John chapter 1. I just want to turn there I can't quote like Tom can quote, so I got tabs in my Bible, okay? I haven't got there yet. Maybe someday I will. I baptized with water, John, John chapter 1, verse 26, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, when you say get ready, I had better be prepared, what happens? It happens. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the older translations, love him, behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the, in the beginning was the word, from the beginning. I myself, John says, did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And after his baptism, then his temptation in the wilderness, and then the beginning of his, his ministry, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus went teaching and preaching, and Jesus was a man of compassion. He cared about people. He, wa he wanted little kids in the service. Let them come to me. Don't forbid them. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus was a man of compassion. He didn't say, oh my word, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Can you believe what these people are doing? Jesus was moved with compassion towards people. He saw people as they really were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When we're buffeted about, when we're tossed to and fro, Jesus sees that, and he came to be our good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. So he calls his disciples in Matthew chapter 4. He gives us those, this incredible sermon on the mount in Matthew seven, 5 through 7. He does miracles, he does teachings, and he begins to get opposition. He begins to run into opposition. Starting in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus begins to predict what's going on. He begins to predict, what, predict what's going to happen. In Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. He's starting to tell them, like prophets tell us ahead of time what the Lord's going to do, Jesus begins to tell his disciples what's going to take place. Then in Matthew 17, and verse 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. 
and the disciples were filled with grief. And then once again, Jesus, Jesus predicts his own death in Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Did Jesus know he was the Lamb of God? I believe he did. He knew his mission, and he was telling them, he was preparing them. Did they get it? No, they didn't get it at all. So let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Let's talk for a minute about the cup of God's wrath. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Guys, I am dying. I cannot believe this. I need you to stay here with me. I need your support. It's like when you're desperate and you're going through, through things and you know there's one, two, three people that you can call and they will pray. Going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face to the ground have you ever agonized in prayer so that you were on your face on the ground before God? Have you ever wrestled with, I've wrestled with the Lord on the floor of my office. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That's the problem with trying to wrestle with the Lord. You're never, ever, ever going to win. He's going to pin you every time. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can you say, can I get an amen? <laughs> he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible, possible for this cup to be taken from me, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them, and he went away once more, and he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. When he returned to the disciples, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners." Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. His last week is spent in the precincts of Jerusalem. He's in and out, back to Bethany. Bethany's up the Mount of Olives and over on the other side. Here's Jerusalem, here's the Kidron Valley, here's the, here's the Mount of Olives. Bethany's like over here, down and over. The valley is narrow. When I always thought of the Kidron Valley, I thought of the valley. It's a very narrow valley. There's like a two-lane or a four-lane highway there. Had the great privilege of going to Israel myself in 2008. So Jesus is walking past, you walk right past Gethsemane to go into the city. Walking back and forth past it all week. He's probably played, prayed there before. And Gethsemane means oil press. The place where the oil was squeezed out of the olives. And so Jesus has come there on this night. He spent this entire time, John's gospel gives us the whole, the whole sermon, the whole discourse, the upper room discourse that he gives his followers. And now he's here in this garden. My friends, for three and one half years, Jesus has not wavered. 
He's not wavered. He's done exactly what the Father wants him to do. Now the time has come, the most crucial time of his ministry. He's almost to the end. He's so close he can taste it. He's about to finish the mission that he came to do. And I've been thinking this week of what he said in Mark. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is what Jesus is about to do. This is it. All the preparation beforehand, this is it. And this is going to be the hardest thing that he has ever done. And Jesus, fully God, fully man, real flesh and blown, real spirit of God, is sorrowful, he's troubled, he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he's entering a time of agony. Again, his agony is described in Gethsemane, not in the cross. The videos bring the cross to life, but the gospel accounts don't tell us all that. We know that, that it's accurate, but they don't, that's not the emphasis. He is entering a time of agony, but we, we dare not make the mistake of thinking it was just the physical pain that he dreaded. My friends, it was so much more. And so he prepares himself the best way any of us can prepare ourselves for hard things through prayer. He prays, he falls down on his face. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. This is the dreaded cup of God's wrath. God's wrath is the manifestation of his hatred of sin, wickedness, and all who defy him. Now remember, God's wrath is not the same as people's anger. It's not like, I'm going to pay her back, I'm going to get even. That's not the idea of God's wrath. God's wrath is stirred. It's rose up. It comes up in him by his overwhelming concern for purity and for, for anything that stands opposed to his total and complete holiness and love. All people, all of us, even Corey Ten Boom, even Billy Graham, all of us have a sin nature, and we deserve the eternal wrath of God as his just response to our sin. So therefore, I'm telling you right now, the greatest problem that we face as people, it's not world hunger, it's not the election, it's not violence in the street, it's not Hamas, it's not whatever. The greatest problem that we have is the wrath of God. It's the greatest problem that we will ever face. And in the Old Testament, the wrath of God is seen as a cup. In, in Isaiah 51, 17, this is what we read. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Psalm 75, 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cupful of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. But Jeremiah the prophet just really makes this so clear. Jeremiah chapter 24 and verses 15 and 16 is where we'll start. Jeremiah 24, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. 
Take from my hand, whose cup is this? This is God's cup. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup, Jeremiah says, from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem, the towns of Judah, Pharaoh, Egypt, Uz, Ashkelon, Gaza, all the people of the Philistines were going to have to drink this cup. And down in verse 27. Then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Drink. Drink and get drunk and vomit. Okay, that's where we can't take scripture out of context, right? Because if we took it out of context, we could say, oh, God, God commands us. You know, you know what I'm saying. Fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink it, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. The cup of God's wrath is a drink that is filled with every kind of sin. It's a cup, and inside the cup is anger and hatred and bitterness and gossip and sexual immorality and self-righteousness and homosexuality and uh, taking God's name in vain. And all of this is in this cup, and it's disgusting and it's vile and you would never ever want to drink it none of us would but especially if you had never sinned yourself why would you ever want to drink a cup full of sin jesus is on his knees praying let this cup pass from me come on father i don't want to drink it like your little kids with the cough syrup i don't want to drink it you know when he drinks the cup, he will become sin. And for the first time, the eternal relationship of the fellowship of the Trinity will be broken. He'll be separated from the Father. And so he has great revulsion in drinking the cup. He comes back. What are the guys doing? They're sleeping. They're zonked out. And he prays again, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. I don't know about you folks, but I have never been good with cough medicine. When I was a kid, formula 44D. I would rather cough all night long than drink that. I hated it. I, to this day, I drink cough medicine. I get so far down and I just sh my whole body just shudders. I hate it. But you know what? That wasn't nothing compared to the time I had to have my first colonoscopy. You got to drink that stuff, right? You drink, and at first you think, oh, that's not so bad. Then you got to drink some more, and you got to drink some more. And I'm telling you what, the more I drank, the worse it tasted. And I, and I got to tell you, you know, we're all friends here. I actually did vomit a little bit just trying to get that stuff down. You know, it was horrible. Again. Jesus is not so much concerned about the physical pain of crucifixion. He's not so much concerned about the humiliation of hanging naked for everyone to see. He was agonizing over the fact that if he drinks the cup of God's wrath, he would not only come in contact with sin, he would become sin. And then that fellowship with God would be broken. So there Jesus is. Everybody's asleep. And he's all alone praying. 
I want you to hear this poem written by a young woman in her college years. I believe it was at Wheaton College. It's called All Alone. Perhaps some future day, Lord, thy strong hand will lead me to the place where I must stand utterly alone. O oh, gracious lover, but for thee, I, sh I shall be satisfied if I can see Jesus only. I do not know thy plan for years to come. My spirit finds in thee its perfect home, sufficiency. Lord, my, all my desire is before thee now. Lead on, no matter where, no matter how. I trust in thee. Written by Elizabeth Elliot in her college years. You know the story of her husband Jim and the Aka Indians. Jesus is there pouring out his heart to the Father. He is sweating like great drops of blood. He is agonizing over the task. Why doesn't God let him off the hook? Why does he have to do this? Luke gives us a little bit more detail. I love how all the Gospels fit together. Father, Luke 22 and 42. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And he being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. God came and helped him. But he's fighting the battle in the garden, not at the cross. And Jesus says, okay, I will submit to your will. Okay, I accept it. And one more time he prays, Lord, not as I will, but as you will be done. And now he will be enabled to do the Father's will. Now Jesus has it settled, and he will be able to drink the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. And you, know, you and I know what happens next. But let's look at it with fresh eyes. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He has illegal trials, mock trials in a kangaroo court. He's passed from Annas to Caiaphas to, to Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's slapped. He's spit upon. They dress him in a purple robe and shove a crown of thorns on him and blindfold him and say, ah, prophesy which one of us hit you. And he was led from the praetorium up to the place of execution. And one of the, he, one of the first things he says is in Luke 23. Luke 23, verses 32 and 34. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. He's being led out, he's being beaten, he's, he's marred beyond human recognition, and they're putting the nails into his wrists. And what does he say? You better watch out, sucker, my father's going to zap you. No. What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Just 
just the night before, Jesus was praying blood. He was praying blood not to have to do this job. And in this morning, as he's nailed to the tree, Jesus prays that God will forgive the very people who are crucifying him. Okay, now who crucified him? Who put him there? Who's responsible? Is it the unbelieving Jews? For centuries, Christians have persecuted Jews as those Christ killers. Was it the Romans who did it, who actually nailed him there? Was it the mob who yelled, crucify him, crucify him? It's all of the above and so much more. Every single person who has ever committed a sin is guilty of nailing him there. It's like the song, who nailed him there? Who nailed him there? And then I turned and I saw the hammer was in my hand. But, get this, every sinner who repents other sin and receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior is the answer to this prayer that he prayed. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That includes me and that includes you. Just a little bit down the chapter here in verses, in verse 39 through 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There they are, three criminals. Two of them are getting exactly what their crimes deserve. One is bitter and railing and full of hate, but the other asked in faith. Get this, some, some new insights that God has given me. Get this. He says, Jesus. Remember me. Jesus' followers all called him rabbi. They all called him teacher. When he was arrested, when he was under trial, they just kept saying, this guy, this man, that Nazarene, they would call him. But this man who was hanging on the cross at the last minute of life as he is dying says, Jesus. He calls him by name in a personal relationship. Isn't God good? Isn't Jesus good? Up until the last minute. This man was saved, not from physical death, not from the pain of, of crucifixion, but he was saved from the cup of God's wrath. He was saved from eternity in hell. And then we look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. All this is going on. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, and woman was not a woman in the kitchen. It was a term of respect and endearment in that culture. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his house. I'm telling you what. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And Jesus honored his mother to his very last breath. In the process of dying for the sin of the world, in excruciating pain, pushing on that post for every breath, beating, bruised, bleeding, Jesus pauses 
and he honors his mother, and he provided for her care in his absence. And you know what that teaches me? And I have to remember it sometimes. We can do ministry for God and honor our families at the same time. It doesn't have to necessarily be one or the other. When God calls you, you can be honoring to your parents, honoring to your husband, honoring to your spouse, and serving God at the same time. Back in Matthew chapter 27, I know we're jumping around a lot. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lame sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's darkness on the land. It's just like in Egypt. The darkness symbolizes the judgment of God. About three o'clock in the afternoon was the time for the evening sacrifice. And this is what Jesus dreaded so bad. The cup he did not want to drink. Separation from God, his Father. The wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus full strength. And it was a terrible, terrible thing. And all through the Gospels, when Jesus talks about God, the Heavenly Father, he always says, my Father, my Father, my Father. And in this moment, what does he cry out? The one and only time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Intimacy with the Father broken because of Bonnie's sin. Intimacy with the Father broken because he took up our transgressions and carried our iniquity. Not Jesus' own sin, he didn't have any. Your sin, my sin, the sins of our youth, the sins of our recklessness, the sins we did yesterday, the sins we'll do tomorrow. The cross covers them all. He was abandoned. He was stricken. He was isolated, and he was all alone. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would never, ever have to. And he said in John chapter 19, the next saying from the cross, Verses 28 and 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. Get this, I love this. So they, they soaked a sponge in it and they put the, stalk, the sponge on a stalk of what? The hyssop plant. Hyssop, the same thing the Israelites used to paint the doorposts and lifted it to Jesus' lips. It has been hot here this week. I understand it's not the hottest camp, me camp meeting on record. I mean, there's others that have been hotter. But to be suspended between heaven and earth, baking in the Judean sun. When I was there, we got to go to Masada. So Masada is up this cliff, this fortress of Herod. I really loved the history. I really, really enjoyed it. But I was so ready to get down off of there because it was baking hot. It was blistering hot. It was unbelievably hot. So Jesus really is experiencing physical thirst. He's, he's dehydrated. All the blood he's lost. You know, not to be too graphic, but you're nailed to the, you're nailed to the cross. Your body decides your bowels are going to move. Your, your, your bowel decides you're going to urinate. It happens, right? You're nailed up there. It's gross. There's no one giving you any help. 
but this was not just physical thirst. It was so the scripture would be fulfilled because my friends, even on the cross, even bleeding out, he's in control, he's majestic, he's on, he's on mission. So the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus had the living water. He offered it to the woman at the well in John 4. My friends, Jesus is the living water. But while he was on the cross, he could not drink it himself or his mission would have been aborted. He couldn't drink it himself. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the water of life. And also in John 19, verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He had submitted to the plan from the creation of the world. He had drank the cup of God's wrath. And everything happened just as the scripture said it would. Jesus made sure that everything was fulfilled. And then after that was fulfilled, he said, it is finished. And we're thinking, oh, it's finished. No, no, no. It is finished! Tay paid in full, paid in full. When you, were, went to the, when you went to Rome to pay your taxes, you got a little, little piece of paper. They stamped it after you paid your taxes. Tay Telestai paid in full. My friends, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He paid the price that you and I could never pay. It had to be a cross of love. Back to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, 44 and 40 through 46. It was now about noon. These are overlapping accounts, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last, and there's a couple things to notice here. First of all, I want you to know and notice and realize that no one took his life from him. His last breath was his last deliberate act. I don't know that you and I can do that. I don't know we can say, I'm going to breathe out and I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus. I don't know that we have that option. I know too many saints who have died long, drawn-out, lingering deaths who would have loved to have said, this is it, I'm going to heaven today. We don't have that ability, but Jesus did. Jesus did. John 10, 17. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, Jesus said only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. He did this as an act of his will. He breathed his last. He commended his spirit into God's hands in a way that probably none of us ever could. And the second thing I think we must notice here is that the work is now done. It is finished. And what do we read? Fellowship with the Father is restored. From my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
a beautiful restoration of oneness, of unity. I, I don't know if that means anything to you. That means something to me. To think of it like that, I never thought of it like that before. Okay, Bonnie, that's great, and I've heard it before. What does it have to do with me today? What does it have to do with us today? Go to a family picnic, you go to a family get-together, you often have the red solo cups, you know what I'm saying? Does everybody get a marker and write their name on it? Does anybody do that in your family when you have a big gallon? Raise your hand. Oh, good. Oh, good. We're not the only weird ones. So we, got, we had a family get-together on the 4th of July. It's actually my mother-in-law's birthday is the 4th of July, so we tried to get together. And you guys, she, her, she's coming to the end of her journey. She's coming to the end of her journey. She has cancer. She has six to eight months to live. But she, she wanted us all to get together, so of course we did. And so Danny's sister, instead of getting the marker, she did it ahead of time. I don't know if you can see this. This is Danny's cup. It's got little patriotic things on. This is my cup. It's got my name on it. It's really cute. You know, usually we just use the red cups. But um, we actually brought our cups with us that day, so we didn't use these. So I kept them because God knew I was going to need them for this illustration. We write our names on it so nobody else drinks our cup. We write our names on it so we keep our germs and our defilement to ourselves. Any germaphobes? You know, you just wouldn't drink after anybody. You couldn't stand it. You know, that's the kind of idea. Get this. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that had your name on it. It had my name on it. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I would never, ever, ever, ever have to hold it and drink it to its bitter dregs. He drank it for you and for me. Because we were estranged from God our Father. We were in need of reconciliation. Reconciliation is when two people or two parties are at odds, are made one again. You know, in negotiations or in companies or in unions, it sometimes requires a mediator, a person who goes between and represents the best interests of both parties. Reconciliation first realizes that we're alienated. Our sins have separated us from God. That's where it starts. We have to realize that we are God's enemy. Our sins have separated us from God and placed us under his just wrath. We deserve nothing but condemnation. But God, the party who has been offended, takes the initiative to win us back to himself. He doesn't say, I'll wait till they say they're sorry. He doesn't say, well, when she does that, then I'll... No, God took the initiative himself to win us back, and he did that through a mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, who bore the penalty for our sins, who removes the reason for estrangement, and who brings us back to God, who redeems us by the blood of the Lamb. And redemption is a commercial term borrowed from the ancient Near East where slaves were bought and sold on the slave market. In a biblical vocabulary, Jesus has purchased us from the slave block of sin to set us free from sin's bondage. The price for our redemption, his very life. We needed a redeemer and he is our blessed redeemer. Watch this video.
really thankful for visual arts, aren't you? Jesus bore God's wrath so that sinners could be reconciled to God. Do 
you get this, my friends? Do you understand a little better than before that it had to be a cross of love? There's just no other explanation. It had to be love. Do you realize that even if you were the only person that ever lived, that Jesus would still have to die in order for you to be redeemed? But here's the thing. It was always his plan to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And if you want to go to glory, you have to go through the cross. There's no other way. I don't know what you're thinking today. I don't know if you're getting tired of, are you getting tired of hearing about the cross? Are you getting weary of looking at these clips of the passion? This is the reality of the absolute heinous nature of our sin and what it costs the God of heaven to deal with. So my friends, I have to ask you and I have to ask myself, what sin or sins are you playing around with? What sins are you taking so lightly? What sin are you committing that you're acting like it's not that bad? Sin is bad. All sin is bad, bad, my friends. No, it's not bad. It's deadly. It will turn and it will kill you. My sin and yours cost the sinless one his very life. And when people don't turn away from sin and turn towards the cross and turn towards the Savior, they too will pay the price, the death penalty. God's wrath remains on them. You see, John said, he said, he that has the Son has life. But he that does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you and I have one simple choice. When we get to heaven and stand before God, if we've refused Jesus Christ, we can take God's wrath ourselves, Or we can say, Jesus, only Jesus, and, and then we will be able to be ushered in. God's wrath will land in either of those places. Maybe you're getting tired of hearing about the cross. I hope you're not. Maybe you're here today and you're seeing the cross and you're seeing the Christ of the cross with fresh eyes, with fresh love, with fresh understanding, and hopefully with some fresh commitment. Do you see the cross as your only hope? My friends, are you and I learning how to glory in the cross? Have you ever thanked Jesus for dying on the cross in your place, for taking your sins on him. The cross is the only place where guilty sinners can be reconciled to God. The cross is the only place of redemption. And therefore, the cross is the place of victory, of celebration, and of worship. And I don't know about you, and I don't know what your worship style is in your church, but when I study this stuff, and I go to church on Sunday, and they sing a song about the cross, whether it's 150,000 years old or written last week, I get excited. When we dig into God's word, and then we go into the sanctuary, and we hear it resonating again, you and I should be worshipers. We should be the leaders of the congregation, worshiping God the way he made us do it. Maybe it's quiet, maybe it's prayerful, maybe it's waving. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what goes in your congregation. But I'll tell you what, he deserves our worship. He's worthy, what he did for us. Through years un unnumbered on heaven's shore, Will your song and will my song praise him forevermore? He's our blessed redeemer. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, for filling our eyes with a fresh vision of what you did for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you bore the sin of God, our sins, and you bore the wrath of God so that we will never, ever have to. Thank you that you were forsaken by your Father so we never, ever need be. You made the way. You are the way. Our hope is in you. Our life is in you. You're our everything, and we want to worship you. We want to worship you because you're not still on the cross. You have risen. You're alive. You're ascended. You are glorious. You are coming back. You're our king, our rock, and our redeemer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.